Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone from the Old East Coast, he's our guest, senior writer for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Daniel Radosh. Seen a shooting star tonight, I thought of me. If I was still the same, if I ever became what you wanted me to be, did I miss the mark or overstep the line that only you could see? Seen a shooting star tonight, and I thought of me. Listen to the engine. Listen to the bell. As the last fire truck from hell goes rolling by, all good people are praying. It's the last temptation, the last account, the last time you might hear the Sermon on the Mount. The last radio is playing. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. I always loved seeing a shooting star tonight and thought of me. Yes. We <laughs> needed that rhyme. That's, you know, yet another outrageous thought from Bob Dylan. Why did you choose those lyrics? Well, Oh Mercy has always kind of held a special place for me uh, because I really got serious about Dylan in the mid 80s. And so I would eagerly get every new album that came out and then they were all terrible, you know. So when Oh Mercy comes out, it's like, oh, this is, you know, amazing. He can still do this. And then I went around telling everyone Dylan is back, you know, and then under the red sky comes out after that but oh mercy for me was such an amazing album and i you know listened to it so much when it came out and for years after and then year a few years later um so i was in college at at that time and then um kind of after college i kind of stopped listening to dylan uh, as seriously you know i was always still a fan and i was still i guess considered him my favorite uh, artist but I really stopped listening to him seriously in that way uh, for a long time. And then a few years ago, I uh, started doing this project where I told people on Twitter, you know what, I'm going to listen to every Bob Dylan song chronologically from start to finish. I'm going to dive back in and remind myself uh, what this was all about. And a lot had changed, obviously, in my life over that time. One of the things that had changed was that I had written a book about Christian pop culture, including the subculture of commonly called Christian rock, uh, which I had never listened to before, because why would you if you were not from that world? But when I got to Oh Mercy again, having that genre familiar to me now, I started hearing it in a very different way. You know, especially when I got to, um, you know, everything is broken. The concept of brokenness is a very common theme in Christian rock. It's a, you know, there are a lot of songs about, about God healing the broken world and, and healing broken people. And in fact, how brokenness is kind of the requirement for, for salvation or for mercy, if you want to put it that way. And so I suddenly something clicked in me. And as the songs are playing, through this album, I start picking up on all of these notions of, of sin, I think, is kind of the thing that I found that he was singing about over and over again in Oh Mercy. And, you know, and obviously, like, Ring Them Bells is a very religious song, and uh, Man in the Long Black Coat, you know, to me, is all about, you know, the seductiveness of sin. And what good am I? Is, yeah. The, well, they the, say Disease of Conceit was inspired by Jimmy Swaggart's fall you know sure sure yeah and so then so the reason i chose um shooting star which is not my favorite song on the album but that lyric uh that i quoted another thing that had happened to me in this time between when i you know had stopped listening and when i started again is that um i started going to synagogue and at one point the rabbi gave a sermon in which he said you know we we tend to think of sin as doing something wrong Right, the, the sins are the things you do wrong, but the Hebrew word for sin literally translates as missing the mark. So when I got to that line where Dylan says, "Did I miss the mark?" or over said, wow. I was like, "Holy shit!" Like there was a hiding in plain sight was a yeah. layer of meaning here that I had never heard before. I was going to say it's an Easter egg. I think it's a literal Easter <laughs> egg. Um, and uh, it, it really like struck me just how, you know, the, the amazing thing about Dylan for me is that you kind of bring to it your own experiences. He's doing so many different things. And obviously, you know, I, I, I would never say any Dylan song is only about one thing, right? I don't think Shooting Star is only about his relationship with God. But I do think that that's 
an aspect in there that I had never noticed where he is singing about, did I, you know, become this person that I was trying to be that, that you wanted me to be, or did I miss it? And, you know, it's interesting because the difference between, I think this and his, what we typically think of as his Christian albums is that uh, in this case, I think he is, he's coming at his, I do think Oh Mercy is a Christian album. I, I consider it that now. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of right there in the title. I think that is the, you know, the mm. mercy of God that he's talking about. But it's from a different perspective of what we think of as the Christian albums. It's something more about doubt and struggle. Um, and this is also something I learned, you know, like, when I really began diving into Christian rock, that there is a sort of kind of subset of that, of musicians who come at it from that angle. And the thing in particular in this lyric that I chose was where he says, um, did I overstep the line that only you could see? Well, that's kind of, you know, throwing some shade at God, right? If if the line is something that we can't see, how are we supposed to know? If we just, It's not really my fault if I overstep the line that you didn't let me see. So anyway, that that's, you know, long story short, I, uh, for me, doing this project really helped me see Oh Mercy in particular and, and that song, especially in this whole new light. And it really just made me uh, remember what had been so special to me about Bob Dylan. And, and I have not <laughs> looked back. I've been listening to him seriously for the last few years now again. So just to go back, can you just tell us a bit about, first of all, where, where you're from originally, sort of a bit about your background, maybe even your family background, just so we, so we and then tell us how you sort of came to Bob. Originally. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I'm from New York, um, you know, in my 50s. Um, I started, like I said, I started listening to Dylan seriously uh, when I was in high school. Um, it was actually... Um, when Biograph came out, I kind of, you know, I had known enough about Dylan that I thought, oh, I'll get this and kind of see what I'm missing. And then I was like, wow, there are so many things here that I'm missing. And that's when I began diving in. But I actually grew up being very familiar with Bob Dylan because um, my father had been in the New York folk music scene and had, was a Dylan fanatic from the very beginning. Um, so I'm kind of second generation oh. Dylan fanatic. Uh, my father actually uh, met Bob in um, 1961 and 62 uh, when Dylan was passing through Madison, Wisconsin, where my parents were in college at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, the story goes that um, there's a knock on their door one morning and um, there's this teenager standing at their door saying, uh, hey, friends of yours uh, told me I might be able to crash with you for a few days. And uh, my parents looked at this kid and said, no. <laughs> uh, and then Bob said, you know, they refused Jesus too. Um, and, <laughs> and they said, you're not him. <laughs> you're not him. No, I, and then, uh, but my, my father um, passed uh, Dylan on to his good friend, Danny Kalb, who later went on to form the Blues Project with Al Cooper. So it all kind of worked out in the end. So I, yeah, I'd always, you know, kind of known Dylan as this figure in my life and I knew who he was. And then, uh, at some point I, um, you know, I remember specifically discovering Simple Twist of Fate for some reason. Uh, that was the song that I first thought of as my Dylan song as opposed to my father's mm. Dylan song. And, um, a lot of the tracks that remains to this day, my favorite, uh, Dylan album, but that was the first one I really listened to. Uh, and then, like I said, you know, when Biograph came out, I then began diving into everything that he did. I'm also interested in why you got into your book is uh, Rapture Ready, right? And so yes. you wrote this book about contemporary Christian music. Why? I mean, it's something, you know, I just couldn't imagine, you know, go even doing the research. I, I was raised Jewish and I'm a bit freaked out by things like contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian society the you know certainly i probably i don't know very much about it but i know the sort of more reactionary segment of it and i don't uh like it it <laughs> makes me uncomfortable yes. um, so why did you decide to go down into that kind that's of why that's, that's why, why because it freaked me out and it made me uncomfortable <laughs> um before i started writing for television i was a journalist and uh, i always found that the stories that uh, made me uncomfortable and that i didn't understand were the ones that became the most interesting and it's you know like i drove yeah 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 i think so and and i started 
I think from this point of view of, oh, I'm going to dive into this world and like expose them. You know, I don't know what I had in mind, um, but I really decided pretty quickly, I'm going to go into this with an open mind. I'm going to figure out like, if this stuff that seems so schlocky to me is actually important to people, I'm going to find out why it's important to them. I really want to understand that. And, you know, it's so interesting because Christian rock, which is the, the kind of one aspect of that community that has, that most people are at least familiar with has so many different layers to it than we really know. And as far as the, the Dylan piece, you know, it's interesting because we think of like the Christian period as being a thing unique to Dylan, but in a way it was a moment where he became a part of this larger community of contemporary Christian music. And so kind of thinking about those albums in that period from the perspective of his relationship to CCM is you know, contemporary Christian music. Mm-hmm. Um, it really made me see even those albums in a different way and kind of helped me understand more of what he was doing. So for instance, just to give you an example, I love slow train. I think it's a really good album. I mean, musically, I think it's incredible. A lot of it, you know, a lot of the songs I, I have nothing to argue with, but I think it is not certainly his finest work. And I think what keeps it from being his finest work is that it is so literal. It is so kind of unpoetic, right? Even the, when the lyrics are good, it doesn't have that aspect of poetry that the best Dylan songs have, I think. And I was talking to some Christian music fans about what they liked or didn't like in a song. And people would tell me Christian music cannot have any ambiguity or irony because the purpose of Christian music is to lead people to Jesus. And if you say something, even if your heart is in the right place and you mean well, and you just want to express yourself poetically, if somebody doesn't understand and they are led off stray, then that's on you. And then that's you committing a sin. Mm -hmm. And I think with slow train in particular, Dylan had internalized that aspect, uh, that approach to Christian rock. And this idea that everything has to be, you know, clear declarative statements so that everyone knows what you're talking about. And I think that's kind of why um, his special genius left him at that point, as good as that album is. I think he was, had absorbed a particular approach to Christian rock. And, you know, so in a way he's kind of like in sync with that aspect of the community, but he's also a little out of touch with it because he's coming to Christian rock from a kind of older tradition. Do you guys, it's it's interesting because I always forget like who knows what about (laughs) anything. The guy who's known as the father of Christian rock is this guy named Larry Norman. Did you guys know who Larry Norman is? No, we know nothing about Christian rock. (laughs) So he's this incredible like seventies, rocker dude who you know finds jesus he's the original kind of jesus people you know what you think of as the hippies on the beaches and he's already a musician you know he's very dylan-esque in the way that a lot of aspiring rockers are in the 70s and he kind of says i'm going to bring this he's the first person who says i can bring this language that is native to me um, and i can bring it into the christian world and i can bring the christian world into it And it's very weird and prophetic. And I know for a fact that Dylan is familiar with this music because Gotta Serve Somebody is essentially a rewrite of one of Larry Norman's biggest songs, uh, which is called Righteous Rocker. And I actually, I can read you a verse uh, from Righteous Rocker. So you'll you'll see the connection. Yeah, yeah, Uh, dude. You could be a brilliant surgeon or a sweet young virgin or a harlot out to sell. You could learn to play the blues or be Howard Hughes or the Scarlet Pimpernel. You could be a French provincial midwife or go door to door with a death knife, but without love, you ain't nothing. You ain't nothing without love. And wow. which by the way, I think is a better lyric than <laughs> gotta serve somebody. Musically, it's not as if good. You can, but- if you can get the Scarlet Pimpernel into anything, I think you're doing pretty well. <laughs> so you can see, like, Larry Norman is obviously Dylan-esque. Like these are Dylan-esque yeah. lyrics. And then it goes, you know, full circle again when Dylan clearly hears this song and says, Ah, I can do something. But it is this kind of prophetic voice 
that uh, that's that's from the early 70s. That's from like 1972, I think. And so Dylan mm-hmm. gets there in 79, 1980. Uh, by that time, Christian music has become corporatized and sanitized. And that's the kind of thing that we're mostly familiar with, what you hear on the Christian radio stations. And huh. so Dylan's voice at that point is a little out of step with what's going on in Christian music because he is also in that prophetic mode. So they embrace him, you know, in a way because he's Bob Dylan and it's like a huge coup for this world, right? Mm-hmm. As much as as this aspect of Christian music, this approach is um, very separational from the world. Like, ah, we are doing our own thing. But there's when somebody from the real world adopts it, they are very eager to jump on board and claim it. So they claim Bob Dylan easily, you know, all of his you know, records, his Christian records make their, the top 10 list of the, the best Christian music of the, the year in the CCM magazine, which is like the Christian Rolling Stone. I think actually, I think they keep, I think Infidels also makes the, the year end best of this. Like they keep, even after other people are like, oh, Dylan's done with Christian music, the Christian music scene is still uh, eager to claim him. I wonder but, what did they make of Oh Mercy, do you know? Well, I don't think much. And I think because at that point, in the same way that Dylan fans thought, oh, he's moved on and aren't listening for this Christian vibe, the contemporary Christian music scene didn't really, you know, thought the same thing and had not really uh, paid attention to it. Although, you know, it's, it's interesting because the approach that he takes even when people who come from within that Christian music, this kind of newer approach where he's set aside that separational, everything has to be clear. The point of the music is to leave us, is to lead people to Jesus. There's this other approach, even within the Christian music scene, people who came up in it who said, no, that's not the purpose of Christian music. The purpose of Christian music is to be great music and it will be great music and it will be Christian because it's infused with our own Christian beliefs. That's, you know, T-Bone Burnett, obviously, is kind of the, mm. the person mm. people think of as coming from that world. I mean, I think, honestly, you know, you too, it's a different because they're not American, but it's the same spirit, right? It's, it's clearly the music is imbued with a Christian sensibility, but it is not a propaganda. <laughs> so... Mm. Uh, the people who do that from within the Christian community and want to be part of contemporary Christian music are often themselves not accepted as part of it. Uh, so clearly somebody from outside that world is not going to be accepted as, as part of it either. And I think that's what happens with Dylan later. Yeah. What do you think about, I mean, his record company, well, maybe not his record company, but at the time when I was reading rock magazines of the 90s, they would refer to those that trilogy as, as his Born Again trilogy or his Christian trilogy. Mm-hmm. And then about 10 years ago, or maybe a bit longer, they started referring to it as his Gospel trilogy, which is clearly <laughs> a lot more palatable. And I'm wondering where Gospel ends and where Christian rock begins. And I'm also wondering if there's a right-wing element that isn't in Gospel. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, right, so gospel music is much more associated with the black church, whereas you know, mm. Christian rock is associated with the white church. Mm. Uh, and those are very separate worlds, right? I mean, the, mm. the you know, there's a whole black Christian culture that is very different from the Christian culture, white evangelical culture that my book is about. But yeah, I think uh, definitely, you know, once people start, you know, rehabilitating those albums, I think that's probably why they do it. But I also think, yeah, that he was kind of playing in both traditions. I mean, he's clearly playing in the, the gospel music tradition. Mm-hmm. That's probably why people, like you said, it becomes more palatable. Oh, we're allowed to appreciate mm-hmm. those albums if we call them gospel instead of born again. Yeah. And, and the right wing, you know, he does, I mean, I think he clearly does adopt you know, right wing, you know, you know paleo conservative views in a lot of those uh, albums, and and going forward, you know, Infidels, which is an album that I, you know, I half love. Right, the love songs on Infidels, I think, are some of his greatest work ever. And then the political songs on Infidels, for the most part, I can't stand um, <laughs> because it is like. Uh, God damn you going into outer space and you know and it's also like wow just <laughs> this is not how it's gonna, what's going to destroy yeah. the world. No, I think you in your uh, in your giant list of of all Dylan songs you uh, <laughs> you, you contemplate neighborhood bully, and uh, if I recall, you know you, you you get really get behind it musically. 
Musical. Well, and also, I, I think I will get behind Neighborhood Bully lyrically, too, in the sense that I think it is a well-written song. I mean, I disagree with it profoundly with the politics of it. Yes. Um, but I think it's it's persuasive in its way. I mean, I think it's clever, and I think it's funny, and I think it's... I don't want to say well argued because I don't really think that's the point of a uh, even a protest song, but it's passionate and it's smart yeah. as opposed to Union Sundown, for instance, where I also disagree with it. But I just listen to it thinking, hey, you really think you're saying something cool right now? Like it's yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Neighborhood Bully is like an interesting song for me um, because I that's the that's the political song on Infidels that I that I do love, even as I disagree with it. Yeah. Going back to Oh Mercy, just so because yeah. we're not quite done with that, I think, because it's just such an intriguing uh, album. And uh, I know that I, w- I was rereading um, the stuff in Chronicles about Oh Mercy recently, which is probably the best bit of Chronicles, I think. And uh, there are a few interesting things that I that I noted down. One of them was that Lanois didn't want to record Everything is Broken. He thought that was not really a very good Dylan song. And Dylan, unusually in a way, kept trying to convince him, no, this is a good one. This huh. is a keeper. Yeah. Um, and, and he did, but he had to, I mean, cause they fought constantly. Just if you, you know, you read it, it's quite clear that the, the very first, uh, I think it was the very first session they recorded. They had huge arguments. Uh, Lanois smashed a mandolin and there was some, <laughs> uh, young girl who was uh, being, you know, a, a PA or something who fled in tears. And that was the first song they recorded was that's when they were recording a political world, which was, that was the first session. And every time, you know, Dylan came back, they had a, a, a huge blow up. And then of course, Dylan wanted to leave off series of dreams and, and did right. give off and born in time and, and dignity. You know, he, he talks about dignity. He said, we did 20 takes and they were all terrible. And now I've uh, heard at least six takes and each one great. more brilliant <laughs> than the other. They became like this horrible married couple with this dysfunctional relationship, but it did produce this incredible thing. And, and uh, everything in bro- is broken in particular, just to go back to what you were talking about is maybe Lanois didn't see and Dylan certainly wasn't going to tell him what it was really about. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe that's it. You know, he, he didn't have that sense of brokenness. You know, it's so interesting also, just since you mentioned Lanois, the production of Oh Mercy is so fascinating uh, in terms of Dylan's 80s output because all of his 80s albums feel like they're very, you know, very much produced in the 1980s. And Oh Mercy is the one that I think holds up. I mean, it's obviously like you listen to it and, you know, right away, you know what year this came out yeah. because it's so stamped with that time period, but not in a way that dates it, I think, you know, in, in a way, or not in a way that makes it feel dated. I mean, it does mm. date it as opposed to emotionally yours and like the songs and the albums that feel 80s in a bad way, in an unsophisticated way. I kind of like that Dylan got to put out at least one kind of authentically 1980s album that stands the test of time, but very much mm. feels like a 1980s album. It, it was interesting, again, going back, I don't know if you if you remember what he uh, was talking about in, in Chronicles, no. but I, well, there's a few things that jumped out at me that I did write down here. There are some verses that he said he wrote, but didn't use. And this is in his book. He says, we live in a political world, flags flying into the breeze, comes out of the blue, Moves toward you like a knife cutting through cheese. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, almost had me. I don't know if he's. Jo- I, I don't know if he's taking the piss. Right. Here's another one. What good am I if I'm walking on eggs? If I'm wild with excitement and wet between the legs? Oh no, no. Yes, <laughs> well, he wrote that. This is and he scene. said I wrote that. And I mean, I think he's just taking the piss. And this is the last one. Disease of conceit. He says he wrote this. I'll hump ya and I'll dump ya. And I'll blow your house down. I'll slice into your cake before I leave town. Oh. All of these songs are it's about terrible. food all of a sudden, right? Cheese, <laughs> eggs, <laughs> cake. <laughs> and I've, I've got another one about wine, right? Because wine goes with cheese. We live in a political world, a world of wine, women, and song. You can make it through without the first two, but without the third, you wouldn't last long. Oh no! <laughs> Where did you get that? That's, on, get that's that? on a bootleg. Oh my god! I'm, I'm very fond of that. Oh, so he, somebody did make some good choices. Yeah, uh, <laughs> at least I can't imagine that that wet between the legs line. Oh is, god! But I think he's just taking the piss. I mean, you just don't know, do you? 
You don't know, because there certainly have been instances where he has put out lyrics that are pretty terrible, and they they make it all the way through the process without anybody putting a stop to it. Yeah. It it is true. And then they become Dylan lyrics, and you sort of think, okay. I mean, who knows? And if it's in Chronicles, we we have to take it with a a large pinch of salt, cheese, eggs, cake, and wine. And a a big gout of seltzer. But it's, it's, his, his attitude towards Len was, is fascinating because uh, it, it was a real love-hate thing, wasn't it? Or not even so much of a love thing. I think it's grudging respect versus he was dragging Dylan into you know, a place that he didn't want to go with, with the sound of it. And then Len yeah. produced uh, Under the Red Sky as well, right? No, he produced uh, Time Out of Mind. Yeah, so there's a Burton oh, Taylor okay. element to this relationship. Okay, right. right. Yeah, they, he called Hillary. him back for time out of mind. Yeah. Uh, no, which I, obviously I, I, was a good call. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which was a which was a really good call. Uh, I think those are the albums that I think the modern albums that where Dylan is is pinned down and forced forced to defend himself to to ex, even explain himself. I don't think he would explain himself, but I think he would he would fight his corner. Mm. Whereas I think uh, Under the Red Sky was uh, was the was and not was. Oh yes, right, right, right. Yeah. And they brought everybody into the recording studio. Stevie Ray Vaughan and everybody was in there, and nobody and got threw nothing out. out of it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, because if you recall, uh, for uh, Desire, uh, it was Rob Stoner who claims anyway, and I and I believe him that you know the the first few sessions of desire were, were like under the red sky i mean eric clapton was there they were they were all there and uh S- dylan said what do you think i should do and rob Stoney said throw them all out let's just have you know five of us mm. uh, and that sort of made the album and and lanois brought in his own people and that was the thing is dylan was sort of like you know who are these people and you know lanois said you know these are my people and this is what they're going to do and this is the studio. And, and Dylan, you know, he went a- along with it at first, I think, because he loved, uh, I think he played him Yellow Moon. He played uh-huh. him the acetates of, of Yellow Moon. And he said, mm-hmm. wow, this, and they, there were two wonderful Dylan covers on it. And that's how that sort of happened. Mm. But anyway, going back to your, that, uh, we, we both loved your uh, BD969, your hashtag BD969, uh, all, all those official songs in, in chronological order. Right. I, I started, I said, I'm going to listen to uh, the songs. I made a playlist, um, which I was initially 969 songs. And then, of course, by the time I got started, I kept adding more. So it ended up being way more than that. And then I found the playlist that you guys did that was, you know, much, much more uh, complete and uh, more strictly chronological. But I went with what I had, and and uh, what a great way to uh, experience an artist. By the way, if, if I would recommend mm, this absolutely. to anyone, um, mm. because it's so interesting. Because I came to Dylan, like I said, when I first heard, you know, Biograph, I didn't really have the context for. They're all kind of mixed up. It's not. It's a. It's a. It's a great box set, by the way, and I, you know, it, it's kind of been superseded by the bootleg albums. Mm. But it's not in chronological order. So when I was listening to it, I didn't really know, you know, if a song had been released in 1967 or 1975 it's all kind of mixed up in there so doing this project and, and listening you know just to all the albums and all the official songs from start to finish i'd never really done that with anyone and i would definitely recommend it um, for bob dylan or or whoever your favorite artist is um it's a great way to experience a, an artist yeah. if you had a friend come to you and say you know you've done all this research give me one song what do i listen to <laughs> I say nope. Yeah, no, no, exactly. it's the right answer. But didn't you have a, you had like a you had like a, a league of uh, people voting, didn't you, for for songs on on Twitter and things? Yeah, well, I would do a few. You know, every now and then I would do a contest. You know, what's the best song in this album, or what's the you know, pick one song from. I did a, a, a contest where I pick one song from each album to be the champion of that album and put them mm-hmm. all head to head in a, a bracket. And then for for Dylan's 80th birthday. Um, I decided to do this thing that was a little bit like what you said, you know, if you, if it's the one song, you know, everybody has their list of favorite Dylan songs, which are mm. great for those of us who are Dylan fanatics to, you know, fight about, you know, what belongs on them. But I was thinking, well, for somebody who doesn't really know Dylan, cause there are going to be a lot of people now who think, ah, you know, I've always kind of known about this guy, but I don't know where to start. So I put together, um, four playlists of um, 20 songs each. So 80 songs for 80 years. There'd be to introduce beginners to Bob Dylan. Um, Not necessarily his best songs, but four categories of songs that kind of take you 
up this ladder to the the peak of Dylan. So uh, the first one were the the kind of the icons I called them that were the songs that everyone really kind of knows, even if you've never listened to Dylan, just as they're part of the culture. And then I had the essentials, uh, which are you know this kind of songs that we all think are of as the the great songs, the ones that you have to listen to, and. Then I had um, Deep Cuts, which honestly is just my personal favorites, like the songs you <laughs> encounter, you know, for the songs that aren't on those first two lists, but that I think you should really hear. Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, you know, the the rare gems, which are the ones from the, the bootlegs and the stuff that had been left off albums that, you know, once you're really a Dylan fanatic, you you kind of, ah, these are the songs that you would tell people about. Because I don't think you can go right to those songs. You know, mm-hmm. I think if I were to say... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really have to hear um, Abandoned Love or, or you know, Highlands or, you know, stuff for mm-hmm. me that are like the, ah, these songs are so, I said Brownsville Girl, right? Right, like, I'm not going <laughs> to make somebody yeah, listen to Brownsville Girl. Choice. And just, mm-hmm. but, right, but I think once you've gotten to that last playlist, I think your ears are ready for Brownsville Girl. I will say, uh, I have no way of knowing if anybody made it through all four playlists. So maybe no one did. But it's funny because, you know, obviously people kibitz because that's what Dylan fans love to do. And somebody said, how is Highway 61 not on any of these lists? And my first thought is, you know, well, Mm. what do you you remove? I want to have each playlist be 20 songs. What do you take off? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, ah, Highway 61 should have been on this list. I think it's like, I, I think I eventually said, oh, I would, I would bump I Want You off of the icons list. I think Highway 61 is more of an iconic uh, song. You know, God said to Abraham, kill me. Something like, even if you're not really a Dylan fan, you kind of know that. So I posted on Twitter, okay, I was wrong. This person was right. And somebody immediately responded, no, you were right the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, I changed my mind. I changed back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like choosing your favorite children and you've yeah. got whatever it is, 969 yeah. children. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But speaking of uh, favorites, and one of the my favorite things uh, that you posted was the uh, album covers. Your the, You listed the album covers in order, in the order that you um, – that you thought they they should be, and I was talking to uh, Luke a little bit about this recently. And I've I've always been really, I've always wanted to have a conversation about the album covers, actually, because because you know they 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 come straight from Bob, right? Is that uh, true? Most of them. Well, I, I think mean, most of them do. I asked. I once asked somebody who knew Jeff Rosen, and certainly they all come from from Bob. They all, they've all got to go through Bob. I think. I mean. Famously, he he said he didn't like another side of Bob Dylan. That was foisted on him. But, you know, he was certainly involved in the the, the photography of Free Will and bringing mm. it all back home and Highway 61 and Blonde and he's on responsible Blonde and National for, Skyline. He's know. responsible for the title More Blood, More Tracks, which the more you say it, the less <laughs> offensive it gets. But it, the first time you hear it, you think, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Terrible. Well, I'm not saying that he made good decisions. I, I, the thing that I always thought about making this, you know, I – I, you know, this list of, you know, or uh, arranging them to my favorites, which, which I think are the best covers is that it seems to me that he has like three kind of all time classic greatest album covers ever. And then everything else is just really kind of mediocre <laughs> or bad. And I began to wonder, you know, are those first, are those top three or, you know, maybe top five or six, if you're feeling mm-hmm. generous, were those just flukes? And I, I actually didn't know that he really, I mean, I obviously he has to approve everything, but I don't know how involved he is because it really seems like compared with the music, uh, he does not really seem to care very much about album covers as a visual medium. At least I hope he doesn't, because if, if this is him caring, <laughs> I think right. it is. I, yeah. I think it's weird. It's a bit like his acting. Like you think, really? You're, <laughs> you're doing that? You know, you're you're going to do well, masked and anonymous like that. Yeah, That's I, I can see a brave decision in something like Oh Mercy, but in something like Tempest, I just think, did you just go off the weekend and and let you know the nearest child design this? Yeah, yeah. yeah there are some ter- You know, there are some truly. Ter- I mean, I was looking through. I've got. I've actually got them on the screen in front of me now, so I can. Y- you chose uh, Free Wheeling and Bringing It All Back Home and Highway Sixty One as your your. Yeah, top those three. are the three I think that are iconic. Yes. Yeah, and then well, I would I would say that uh, Blonde on Blonde, you know, belongs up there as well, and I think 
Nashville skyline in its way is. Yeah, I but, put those as uh, I think five and six. I put bottom in the, the tracks road. in the yeah. middle, but but honestly, I might have been um, you know swayed by my affection for. Uh, well, I was going to say blood, blood on the tracks the track. as a cover v- viewed by itself. It's a bit shit, isn't it? It's, it's uh, pretty. See, I like it. I oh, oh, I, I, there's something I, I, about it I like, but maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I'm biased by the music. I don't know. I feel the same because uh, I, I, I was saying this to Luke. I said, "Oh, you know, he put blood on the tracks as, as four, and you know, I think, yeah, you know, it's, it's and he, and Luke said, "No, nah, it's shit." And I thought, <laughs> "Oh my god, you're right. It is. <laughs> the album is so wonderful. You're completely blinded by. I'm so used to it. It's like more. Well, as you know, I'm easily swayed by anybody arguing. So yeah, now I'll, I'll move it. Certainly behind uh, Blonde on Blonde. You've also got. Di- I mean, I'll, I'll continue because I got them in front of me. Yeah. Uh, so you go on to. By the um, way, so you know it's great the, the Nashville skyline because I'm looking at them now. Um, okay. I'm, it's yeah. total coincidence, but his um, the way his hand you know that forms that triangle, uh, which will later become the universal symbol for press play. Um, I don't think that that is intentional. <laughs> I don't think that that symbol right. even existed. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I, I can see it now, but uh, I think it's a bit like the Beatles in uh, the <laughs> Harding, maybe. Um, anyway, then you, you've got uh, the basement tapes uh, there, which we could go on about because I'm not – it's an interesting cover, but is it a good cover? Don't know. And then the times they are changing, which I do think is a terrible cover. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I mean, a terrible. It's I'm terrible. It's terrible photo. It. But I get. And so I mean, I like I, the composition of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like the composition, and, and and it's the same thing. I don't particularly like the album. It's not one of my favorite albums. No. But, but I did when I was looking through it. I thought, uh, a there's Dylan, which I think is certainly one of the worst. It's got to be one of the worst. Yes. But also. Uh, Fallen Angels, which is a cover that I never think about ever. Like if if you'd even ask me, what is the cover of Fallen Angels? I'm not even sure I'd be able to tell you because it's so boring. It so looks like um like dumb. it's a stock it's a stock photo. It looks like somebody went to yeah. Getty Images, and you know I don't know why they chose cards, playing cards. Uh, which again, I'm looking at it too, which is how I remember that it's well, playing Bob cards. Well, Bob you know references to gambling and playing cards and all that, <laughs> but I mean so. So dull. Yeah. I mean, I, I would put that down on the, you know, the near the bottom. Of course, I mean, in a way, I was looking at Empire Burlesque, which you've got as the very last one. And although it's just grotesque and awful and disgusting, it's actually more interesting than a fallen angel. It's trying to do something. It's failing it miserable, but it is trying miserable. to do something in a way that Fallen <laughs> Angels is not. By the way, I put – so I, I, I have saved down there right at the very bottom before uh, mm, Empire Burlesque. Yeah. Um, and it's the new cover of Saved or the second cover of Saved. And I'm not sure now if which is considered the official cover because I was oh, just looking at Spotify again. And the, mm. it has the original cover now of the hand coming yeah, down, yeah. which I think it's much better. I would put that – uh, cover mm. much higher than the one they eventually went with. It, it makes it, it's again, it's an interesting cover, but it does make me want to puke. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, you know, you do have to sort of follow your stomach sometimes. So yeah. I would say that it's a terrible yeah. cover myself. Well, Daniel, but, I'm, you've revealed yeah. the meaning of Oh Mercy, which, which is, was a real, you know, <laughs> Damascene moment for me today. But what's going on with the cover? I mean, what's that got to do with anything? Oh yeah, I, I again. But Bob chose that. Bob, you know, saw that graffiti, you know, on the Lower East Side, and demanded that it be on the cover. So that's is what there, it's doing on the cover. So I made this list before um, Rough and Rowdy Ways came out. So that cover didn't, you know, I, mm. I didn't have to decide where to put that. Uh, there's a similarity, I think, between what I think what he saw in No Mercy and what he saw in Rough and Rowdy Ways and those mm-hmm. existing images, right? You know, it's a Kind of people dance joy, music, dancing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he's certainly a very danceable. Yeah, right. <laughs> both two very danceable albums. Those yeah. two. <laughs> um, and you I also said, I think about Planet Waves that uh, you thought that some people were thought it was a lousier album because of the lousy album cover. <laughs> I think that you said that in your nine. Maybe uh, when I saw it, I thought, boy, that's really ugly. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if the music will be ugly. And I think it did actually influence me because I, it took me a lot of years and mostly Luke, um, pointing out that it was a much better album than I originally thought it was. I think I was quite influenced by the, the shittiness of the, of the drawing of the cover. I quite Interesting. Like that cover. 
I, I do remember listening, you know, Planet Waves, it's one of those things, you know, because like I said, I was, you know, this Dylan fanatic in, in the high school and college. And for a while, I became one of those people who, no, there is even the bad albums, the people, the albums people consider bad. You don't understand. They're secretly brilliant and, and the man can do no wrong. And, um, you know, Planet Waves is one where I was like, ah, masterpiece, top to bottom. And then when I came back to it later, I mean, I still love it, um, but I think I like. I think I can now see. Yeah, there's some stuff in there that's not really very good. I mean, musically, I think it's impeccable. I love. I mean, the uh, it's so the band's performances on mm-hmm. it are so amazing. But I, I think it's second tier or, or bottom of uh, top tier, uh, Dylan. It's not in my. It's mm. not in my top five or ten. Certainly. What I love about Planet Waves is it reminds me of something that Robbie Robertson quoted about the, the mid-60s, the 66 tour, when he said that um, Bob didn't want us to learn any of the songs, just play them. And what mm. I love about Planet Waves is it sounds like they've all just been given them. Uh-huh. Um, and because they're so good at what they do, it doesn't sound sloppy. It just sounds raw to me and edgy. I think someone yes. called it stray cat music, which I think feels right as well. Interesting. Well, it doesn't sound sloppy to me at all. It sounds very no, tight. Yeah. I mean, certainly considered compared to um, some of the other music they made. But it's together. edgy, isn't it? It's, it's like it's it's tight, but it's like someone just taught them this song, and they've they've given everything to it. Yes, yes. Minutes. It's very coiled. It is very like we're going to kind of pour into this and see what what uh, comes out of the moment. Um, yeah. No, I listened to that album. You know almost at the edge of my seat um, because it, it mm. feels like it's about to spring on you mm. um, at any minute. Like, and it's so, and the, and the lyrics, you know, at their best, I think also go there, you know, the, you know, a, a song like dirge or, or wedding mm. song where it's like these sounds superficially like love songs, but it also sounds like if you get too close to them, they're going to like pounce on you and scratch your eyes out. I mean, it is like petting a stray cat in that Mm. sense where it's like, wow, you know, kind of soft and cuddly, but you know, this could turn on you at at any second, which I love. I mean, it's this incredible tension. Yeah. I've changed my mind. This is now a top tier Dylan album. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, just to drag you down, you um you mentioned of down in the groove. I love this. Um, you know, in, in your, uh, on the line, you said uh, if you went to a bar and the band was doing this version of "Let's Stick Together," you'd probably say these guys are great. I bet if they ditched their singer, they could get a recording contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was spot on, actually, because you know, there's some good. There's some good rock and stuff. It's a very competently performed album that does not need to exist. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think famously, you've—I don't know how famous it is, but I know that you've quoted yourself quoting this, which is uh, buying a Dylan concert ticket is like buying a lottery ticket. Usually, you lose, but when you win, it changes your life. Yeah, I mean, I—I have not seen Dylan, uh, you know, as as often as some people have. Um, You know, I think. Uh, for a while I would go, you know, once a year when he would come to New York, sometimes I'd skip a year. So I'd see him every other year, probably seen him, you know, 15, 20 times in my life Mm -hmm. at this point. And uh, certainly have gotten some bad ones. I mean, for me, the life changing one was a uh, secret show at Tramps in in New York, which was a small club, about 300 people. Mm -hmm. And it kind of came about right when I was still, I, I I was still in touch with enough people in the kind of New York Dylan community, um, even though I had stopped listening quite as intensely. But I I, I kind of got the advance word that he's going to be performing, and you could get tickets to this show that was untitled, um, but then mm. that was the Dylan show, and um, you know, three hundred people, standing room only. Elvis Costello joined him on stage. Uh, this was uh, nineteen ninety nine, uh, and you know, he was not, you know, it was a few years after time out of mind. So, you know, he had, you know, he's clearly like capable of greatness still. Um, but I had also seen plenty of concerts around that time when he had not been great. But for this one, for whether it was the venue or whatever it was, boy, just like transcendent. Yeah. Uh, and actually, when I did this re-listening, this Twitter project, um, I didn't listen to any bootleg stuff. Uh, but I did dig up the recording of that Tramps show because I wanted to do a reality test. Like, was it, you know, as good as I remembered? And it really is. I mean, it's it's just a performance for the ages. And um, 
boy, you know, I'll I'll keep chasing that. <laughs> I'll keep yeah. I'll keep I'll keep going to see his shows as long as he keeps touring because maybe yeah. he'll do that again. You're um, a defender of uh, and uh, a lover of, as am I, uh, the MTV Unplugged live. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, you know. And why do people hate it so much? At least a lot of Bob people hate it. And I love it. I was listening to it just recently and I, I never get tired of it. I find it really inventive, musically terrific. He's in fine voice. Was it because he sang his, not only his greatest hits, because he sings John Brown? You know, why yes. Do you hate it? I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I also think that, um, that's funny because I talked about, uh, Oh, Mercy being so much of its time. Uh, the Unplugged is very much of its time, right? That's sure. a, a distinctively, boy, that MTV Unplugged sound is a very distinctive mm. one and he mm. leans into it. You know, so uh, maybe people just don't uh, have associations with that. They don't like, uh, I, but they I hated it. it at the time. They you did know, hate it, was, it at the time. It was pretty reviled yeah. at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. It was well, like look, he was I, selling out to the man because they were MTV. I think so that was it was part the of peak it. of his lack of fashionability. I mean, it was 1995. Mm. It was, it was, he was at rock bottom in popular terms, you know. But he that was also the, what those, what that series kind of did was reintroduce mm. people, right? Like Tony Bennett, you know, was mm-hmm. certainly not fashionable when he did MTV Unplugged, and it kind of you know, launched his renaissance uh, among. I also think that the, you know, I mean, this is the classic Dylan Geeks response, but the stuff they cut out is amazing. I want you tonight. I'll be staying here with you, Hazel. You know that there's some great stuff in there, much better than what's on the album. I think. I no argument there, and I I honestly hope that at some point that gets an official release. Yeah. Um, you know, I I had uh, when I posted that I really liked this album. You know, one of my Twitter followers said, "Oh, have you heard the bootlegs?" And I said, mm, "Just a couple songs here and there." And she sent me the entire thing. I was like, "Oh yeah, no, see, this mm-hmm. is this." I think I think I was hearing that. I think I was hearing one of the reasons mm-hmm. I like that album is that I kind of heard the potential for what else uh, was there and and in fact is there if you can if you can search those out i think i said that i it was my favorite live album i think i i mean uh, as far as the kind of officially i was not thinking of the bootleg sure album. sure you were only talking about official albums anyway, yeah so. but but i think that's probably more a reflection of how bad all the other live albums are i mean i don't think other than the bootleg series has dylan released a single good like really great live album I guess Hard Rain has its uh, has its disciples, but for me, the you know now that you know from the Live seventy five albums and the Rolling Thunder bootlegs, like the stuff that he was performing around that time, that was so much better. Why would you make Hard Rain that album? I mean, it. Mm, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go back into the album cover thing, but you know, Under the Red Sky. <laughs> Apparently, I read the other day that he actually took that picture, that he set up a camera. The oh, was the he was the photographer of that, one of the worst album covers that he's ever put out. <laughs> and so he was really entirely behind that. It was the back so, cover that I found even, is even worse than the front, the one where he looks like he's been locked out of his own house. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, yeah, I mean, that's a tradition he has of, of terrible, like the back cover of Empire Burlesque. He looks like he's been, I don't know, up all night doing drugs that haven't been invented yet, you know, really awful I, drugs. I guess I just always assumed that he didn't care about the album covers, and so he let other people work on them. I don't know what to think about this. No, you well, have to blame him for a lot of I the album there's, covers. There's a deliberate kind of ethic that says, I look like I don't care, and I suppose that goes right back to out of focus, blonde on blonde, doesn't it? Yeah, but that's how yeah, you do I look like I don't he care. He chose the out-of-focus one, you know. Yeah. That, so I think he cares a lot. But look, even in his music, I mean, certainly, you know, I I perform like I don't care, right? That's a lot of his persona, especially in that, mm-hmm. you know, brilliant mid-60s period, right? That like, you know, that kind of angry young man period where it's like, fuck the world and fuck all of you and you don't get mm. me. So he he knows what caring about looking like you don't care Mm. you know how to make that work and he makes it work in his music and he does not make it work visually care is a really interesting thing because you know he he says he gives um the time magazine reporter in in don't look back both barrels when he says do you care about what you're saying he's absolutely incandescent with rage and yet you know by the late 90s he's saying i used to care but things have changed (laughs) right yes you know and i and i wonder what happens to his level of care throughout his career 
You know, it's interesting that you brought up just that lyrical thing, because one of the things I loved about doing this project, listening to it chronologically, was I noticed how many of his songs seem to be in dialogue with his earlier material. And I don't know, you know, you never know how intentional it is, but the difference between, um, you know, the, the journey that he takes from something like, um, you know, if you got to go, go now, or else you got to stay all night, which is, oh boy, a great, clever lyric, but you know, what, what kind of an asshole says that to, um, you know, the bitter taste still lingers on from the night I tried to make her say, which is like, oh, I understand that I do not want to be that person anymore. Yeah. There's one of the religious songs where I almost think it's it's a, a response to blowing in the wind. Oh, I guess it's when he returns, right? It's, mm. um, you know, a series of questions. How long? It, it's, it's basically framing the questions in the same way. How long? How many times? I mean, it's not literally how many times, but he's raising hypothetical questions. Mm. And instead of, the answer is blowing in the wind. Uh, now he's like, the answer is uh, when he returns, right? This I have an answer mm. for you. Now, I don't know that, yeah, I don't think he's stuck with that. Um, and I don't think he was right the second time versus the first time. But I do see it as a kind of in conversation with his earlier self, which is a, amazing that he does that regardless of how intentional it is. And he certainly does seem to care on rough and rowdy ways. I mean, that whole album, it seems to me to be very heartfelt you know, right straight from the, the the gut. Yeah, well, and even, you know, look, things have changed. You know, I used to care. Anyone who says I used to care, but things have changed, obviously <laughs> yeah. still cares very much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, uh, no, I would not trust him on that for a second. <laughs> is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Preacher was a talkin'. There's a sermon he gave. He said, Every man's conscience is vile and depraved. You cannot depend on it to be your guide when it's you who must keep it satisfied. <laughs>